we are talking about people who are changing the world and have more power and money than pretty much anyone else and who have come up with innovative ways to do all of these things that people once thought were impossible. And yet when asked how to bring more women in the tech industry, they say, I don't know what to do about it. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, how Bloomberg's Emily Chang is taking on the tech industry and exposing a culture of sexism and discrimination that she says has been perpetuated for years. From the root of the problem to Silicon Valley's second chance, she takes us inside the world of Brotopia. Emily Chang, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you with us. You're joining us from Bloomberg in San Francisco right now, host of Bloomberg Technology. I'm really glad that we have you here to talk about your new book, Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley. It is, it's a phenomenal read. There's so much history here that you've covered, and it's so clear that you've done a huge amount of work to get to the point of this book. Thank you. And I I appreciate you shining a light on these issues. You know, a lot of, you know, the research that I did when I went back, you know, to the 40s and 50s, I I was really surprised by what I found. And I I just thought to myself, you know, there was a lot of people in this industry who need to better understand how and why we got here so that we can change it. Absolutely. And so much of your history, you've interviewed the biggest names in the industry, Sheryl Sandberg, Tim Cook, Mark Benioff, Peter Thiel, Mark Zuckerberg and many more. What was the tipping point that made you say, I must write this book? You know, I've long been passionate about the representation of women in computing. And so when I would interview some of these big names, as you say, I would ask them, you know, what are you doing about this? What are you doing to hire and promote more women? And in November 2015, I interviewed a venture capitalist named Michael Moritz, who is the chairman of Sequoia, which is one of the most prominent venture capital firms in the world. They funded Google, they funded Yahoo, and at the time they had no women in their U.S. investment business. And this is a firm that had been around for 44 years. So in 44 years, they had not hired a single woman. And I asked him, what do you feel your responsibility is to hire women? And he said, oh, we take it very seriously and we're looking very hard. We don't think enough women are studying the sciences and what we're not prepared to do is to lower our standards. And when he said that, I was completely taken aback. And for the next three months, everywhere I went, people wanted to talk about what he had said. Most people were horrified. Others thought there was nothing wrong with what he had said. And to me, he, in that moment, spoke the truth about what he believes uh, is is really the problem. And, 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 And it expressed what I feel is, is, a, is a much more widely held belief than we know that some people do believe they have to lower their standards to hire women, which is simply not true. And that's when I decided to write the book. 
Women make up almost half the employees and are majority owners of nearly 40% of businesses, but women-led companies received just 2% of venture funding in the year 2016, and women account for just 7% of VC partners at top funds in that year. And you pose this question, what went wrong, how did women get pushed to the sidelines, and what can be done? So... What? How do you answer the the first question? You you obviously you go through this book in many different ways and answer that question. How do you how do you explain that, Emily? First of all, you know, as you say, women hold half the jobs in this country. They get half the college degrees. In fact, more than half in some cases. And yet, they are uh, you know they represent twenty five percent of computing jobs and eighteen percent of of computer science degrees. Quite frankly, I believe it goes back to the stereotype of the antisocial white male nerd that I talk about in the book, you know, how that stereotype came to be, that stereotype has been held for far too long and it has shut out half the population. One of the questions, and I think about this a lot, is companies getting founded by friends. I mean, the reality is, if you're going to found a company, the chances that you're founding it with someone similar to you who's who you're friendly with are very high. So at what point does the responsibility to think outside of, you know, we're buddies and we're going to behave the way that buddies behave? What at what is the turning point? I think it is incumbent on anyone who is starting a company to, yes, look for people who believe in the mission and the same mission that you do, but to go out of your way to find people who don't look like you. If you simply hire people who look like you, you're not going to have a diversity of backgrounds and views at the table. And that can actually hurt your company in the long run. I mean, this is not, you know, the argument I make, it's not just the right thing to do, but it is the smart thing to do. I interviewed Evan Williams, for example, who was the co-founder of Twitter. And he started Twitter with people that he knew, people that he had already worked with, guys who were his friends. And he told me that he thinks if there were more women on the founding team of Twitter, that online harassment and trolling wouldn't be such a problem. They weren't thinking about how Twitter could be used to send death threats. They were thinking about how Twitter could be used to do all of these amazing and wonderful things. And trolling is is probably the biggest problem that the Internet faces today. So, you know, we're talking about having input from from people who have different experiences who can then share that input and, 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 and have an impact on how these products are designed. And, you know, it, to me, it's it's just common sense. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's not, these are not just any products. These are products that are defining this moment in time. Exactly. Silicon Valley is changing our lives every single day in ways that we don't even realize. And I think we take for granted the people who are creating these products because we don't see them. We can't see them. But in fact, this is an industry that is controlling what we read, what we see, what pops up in in the news feed on Facebook, how we shop, how we travel around. They're making the video games that our children are using and the social media uh, that we all are using. And these decisions can't be made entirely by men. And it's not just a problem for Silicon Valley and a problem for people who want jobs in Silicon Valley. It's everybody's problem. This is a cultural problem. Um, and I, I actually dedicate the book to my three young sons, and I fully believe that their lives will be better in a more inclusive world. And I also know that there are so many 
mothers and fathers out there who want their um, sons and daughters to succeed in this industry. And their daughters aren't going to stand a chance if if something doesn't change. But we need them to be making this pro- these products because billions of people are using them. How do you think about, and, and I saw the dedication at the front of the book, which is really sweet, to your, your three sons. How do you teach them? And is there anything that you actively do, knowing what you now know from your research, that you, you do differently? So, you know, and, and, and these are things that I'm sure a lot of parents are doing. But, you know, whenever my son says, uh, girls can't be superheroes, I'm like, hang on, <laughs> wait a minute. Girls can be mommy. superheroes, too. <laughs> And, you know, um, pink is for girls. Absolutely not. Pink is for everyone. You know, these are just small things. And, and you know, as I've been writing the book, you know, being a working mom, it, it definitely has, you know, impacted our, our, our lives at home. And so when I've, I've had to take time away to write on the weekends, I've explained to them I'm doing this because, you know, I, I really want more women to, to know that they can they can do this. And, and I think that my book is going to have a big impact. And, and it really matters. And so, you know, I think talking about my work and why it's important to me, it's really, it's really important for them to hear. And, you know, it, it can be surprising sometimes how early these stereotypes can take hold, but they are coming from you know, cultural and social signals that we're, we're, we're hearing and seeing from everywhere. And, you know, the argument I make in the book is that the industry created this stereotype of the antisocial white male nerd, and that has then been perpetuated and repeated in popular culture. It's not art imitating, it's not life imitating art, it is art imitating life. Mm. And, you know, so it is incumbent on the industry to try to change some of these, the, the culture of the industry itself, so that we can break through those stereotypes. Some of the more uh, scandalous and salacious elements of the book are the drug-fueled, sex-laced parties, uh, those who uh, in in the Valley end up having basically pitch parties in their hot tub. What, were those things a surprise to you, or had you already heard rumblings that that was going on when you started this book? When I uncovered that culture, I was shocked and it depends on who you talk to, how pervasive it is. But I spoke to men and women who were part of this scene. And, you know, women especially felt completely, uh, you know, shut out if they did not attend these events. But if they did, they felt like they were discredited. And, you know, the Bay Area has this long tradition of sexual exploration and, and, and sort of sexual liberation. But if women participate in that scene, they became victims of a double standard. And in a lot of ways, it was a lot more about power than it was about sex. And the power dynamic is, is completely lopsided. You know, the hot tub example, I had an investor talk to me about his hot tub on camera. Chris Saka, he was proud of it. And and I, I think he, he, he probably meant very well. But... For the women who heard that, and I interviewed Katrina Lake, who is a founder of Stitch Fix, she said that she heard him talking about his hot tub parties at a conference, mind you, and thought to herself, who, what woman wants to get in a bikini and pitch investors a business while holding a beer? Certainly not me. And at that point, I'm 100% not going to get funding from this investor if that is how he does business. Those are the kinds of norms of behavior that so obviously need to change. It reminded me of 
when I was starting out in this industry, everybody would talk about going to Davos. And I remembered I had a, a female friend who was in the industry a few years older than I was. And I, I was meeting a, a, a random male executive with her at one point, And he said in front of me and her, oh, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. He said, oh, yeah, I remember when I met your friend at Davos in the hot tub. And, and Emily, in my head, I literally thought I don't ever want to go to Davos because I don't ever want to have to be in that situation where in order to connect with male executives, I have to get in my bikini. And yet mm-hmm. at the same time, and you, you lay this out perfectly, at the same time, if you're not part of that, and by the way, I never did end up going to Davos and being in a bikini. However, that said, if you're a female and you decide to not participate, then you're also, like you said, you're in this double-edged sword. You're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Absolutely. And unfortunately, so much business in Silicon Valley is happening outside the office because this is an industry where there are a lot of young people where personal and professional lives are so intertwined. And Uber is exhibit A. You know, we had Susan Fowler there, uh, a young female engineer, her first day on the job getting propositioned by her manager for sex over the company chat system. And she took screenshots of it and showed it to HR. And they said, we're going to let that slide because he's a high performer. And then at the same time, several female Uber engineers told me that they would routinely get asked to go to strip clubs and bondage clubs in the middle of the day. And if they left at 3 p.m. and came back at 3 a.m., it didn't matter as long as they were getting their work done. But for these women, it's an incredibly difficult position. Do they go to the bar where, you know, obviously they're going to talk about work and who gets assigned to what project and what feature is going to be prioritized for the next launch? Or do you not go and risk being the uncool kid who isn't having, who doesn't, who doesn't have the chance to sort of develop that social currency with, with your peers. And when you're in an environment where you are so outnumbered and these women are often the only woman in the room over and over again, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's like you're doing a whole second job. You're not only fending off advances 24-7, but at the same time trying to preserve these professional relationships. And the women I spoke to said, it's exhausting. Absolutely. And I I wonder how much of this, the the people who are behind this, the most egregious examples, how much of it do you think is something of a two-faced hypocrisy? I have noticed that at least some of the people who I would consider the most egregious offenders that I've personally seen, on the surface at conferences, they say the right things. They behave, at least on the surface, in all the ways that would be the most uh, useful to equality. But behind the scenes, when the cameras are no longer on and it's the part of the night where people are at an event and drinking beer, they're not behaving that way any longer. Right. Um <laughs> You, you are, you are so right that hypocrisy is the perfect word to describe it because we are talking about people who are changing the world and have more power and money than pretty much anyone else and who have come up with innovative ways to do all of these things that people once thought were impossible. And yet when asked how to bring more women in the tech industry, they say, I don't know what to do about it. 
I was interviewing Peter Thiel on stage at a conference, and this is an investor who is pushing the bounds of outer space, building floating communities on the ocean surface, investing in nuclear energy. And I said, but what can we do about the fact that there aren't more women founders? And he said, that, I don't know what to do about it. And I just thought to myself, like, what? You know, how is it possible that, you know, these people can just simply abdicate their responsibility? And there are so many things that they can do about it. And I do have some good examples in the book of hard work that people and companies are doing to make hiring and promoting women more of a priority. But just talking about diversity and saying it's important isn't enough. We need to see action being taken to, you know, and and ensure that this does get done. And right now, it's not getting done. It's a lot more talk and a lot less action. Do you think, having done all of this research, is there one solution that you think it's it's like the low-hanging fruit solution that could be done tomorrow? Here's something that could be done today. I think that CEOs The leaders of these companies need to make diversity a number one, two, or three priority and communicate that to others in the organization. This really needs to come from the top. You can't simply hire a head of HR and say, you know, find diverse talent or a head of diversity and put it all on them. This needs to come from the top. And I actually profile Stuart Butterfield, who is the CEO of Slack, the um, inner office messaging app, and he has... It made this explicit with his team. When your boss asks you to do something, generally, you do it. And, you know, there are a lot more sort of prescriptive measures that I, I detail in the book about what he does. You know, for example, they've diversified their recruiting team. They're sourcing candidates from colleges across the country, including HBCs and colleges in the South that maybe Google uh, doesn't go to. They are, you know, they did a full equal pay review. The pay gap in Silicon Valley is five ni- times the national average. They have more of structured review and feedback systems, so everybody is, is, is being evaluated fairly. There are a lot of things that companies can do today, not tomorrow, not next week, to start changing the balance. For example, Ursula Burns, former CEO and chair of the company Xerox. We had a really interesting conversation here about this question of the pipeline problem. And she said that one of the things that she thinks that perhaps women aren't getting enough of is they're not getting a clear enough indication of these are the steps that one must take. These are the specific boxes that one must check off in order to have my role as CEO. And she basically said, look, all of these roles in the company are really good and valuable roles, but you're statistically going to have a much harder go of it if A, you didn't study engineering, B, you didn't take the job running sales and instead took the job running HR. And and to her point, do you think there's enough information today and enough places where people can truly see and understand the steps that it would take to get to that top job? So there is a lot of incredible work being done to, 
try to change the stereotype and encourage more young girls to get into coding in the first place. And I do agree there is a pipeline problem. I argue that the tech industry created the pipeline problem by having such a narrow idea of of who can do these jobs. But there are some fabulous organizations like Code.org, for example, where they are actually retraining teachers to teach computer science. And in fact, the numbers of girls taking the AP computer science exam are skyrocketing. That said, just because they learn how to do it and they are in, you know, potentially more supportive environments than, than they would have been five years ago, it doesn't mean they stick with it. I interviewed six teenage girls at the end of the book who've all gone through another amazing program called Girls Who Code. And they were so excited to, you know, be potentially part of this industry in the future and do their part to change the world. But they read the news. They know what's happening at Uber. They know that Sheryl Sandberg is the only Sheryl Sandberg, and there are not a lot of other women like her. And so there aren't a lot of role models, and at the same time, they're hearing bad news about a toxic industry. And so I think the industry makes the mistake of saying it's just a pipeline problem, when in fact, what's happening in the industry is affecting these young women. And so there's a lot of work that these companies need to do in order to attract and retain those women. What I would say to, you know, the young girls and women who graduate with computer science degrees is when you're looking for that first job, look for a place that's going to support you. Don't just go work for the hottest company on the block. Look for an environment that you believe values you, you know, values having people of a diversity of backgrounds at the table, and then find your team, find your allies who are going to support you and advocate for you. And, you know, sometimes I think it, it can be really easy to become intoxicated by a brand name, but, you know, that's not always going to be the best place for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, when I, I interviewed these 12 women at my home for dinner, most of them engineers, and I, I had walked into it thinking, oh, I wonder if startups are worse than big tech tech companies because, you know, a lot of these sort of cultural systems aren't in place. But in fact, the woman said, it it depends on your manager, whether it is a big company or a small company, who your boss is can make a huge difference to your overall happiness. And actually, there was a great quote. One of the women said, it's like Russian roulette. So you could either, if you have a good manager, you're set. If you have a bad manager, you're screwed. And so like really paying close attention to who is going to be your boss, who is going to be on your team and, you know, what are your responsibilities? That's what's really important. So true. And I think that's also great advice on your part. And I also think I want to add to that, that um, the media, my job, I take it really, really seriously. And it's part of why we do this podcast, No Limits, in the first place. I, Cheryl Sandberg is phenomenal. She's an incredible role model. But I also believe that there are women like Cheryl Sandberg inside of companies all over corporate America and in Silicon Valley. And it's incumbent on me to find those women and to help them share their stories here. And I think it's the more that we can shed light on those women and how they got to the places that they're in, I think that the more information there is so that it doesn't just appear that there's only one and that that one has to like that everything has to be done identical to the way she did it. I completely agree. And I mean, I, I feel the same responsibility in my role at Bloomberg and even, even in writing this book. Uh, we've recently started something here called the Women's Voices Project, where we are, you know, going out of our way to look harder for amazing women. And you know what? We found some. Um, there are, you know, incredible women out there, you know, breaking down these walls brick by brick. And I think it is 
incumbent upon us to tell their stories. And I, I worked really hard in the book to, you know, find some, you know, amazing women like Katrina Lake, like Jennifer Hyman, who's the CEO of Rent the Runway. Um, you know, I, I interviewed a woman named Janica Alvarez, who is running a smart breast pump company, and she has three young sons. And um, when the company was running out of funding, they moved out of their apartment and into a minivan so that they could wow. save money for two months. And, you know, I think investors have bias against women. They think if you're a mom, you can't do this job. They think you're not willing to sacrifice enough. And she told, she said, if an investor told me, I don't think you can sacrifice enough, I, I would punch them in the face. <laughs> You know, and I was like, amen to that. Way to go, Amen. Janica. I'm really excited to chat with her. She has a she has an incredible story. So a little bit of background on your story, too, Emily, just in terms of how you you got to where you are. So you were born and raised in Hawaii and then you went to Harvard. Was that was Harvard always a goal in your head? Were you always type A and you wanted to be at the best? No, I, I, you know, when I got accepted to Harvard, actually, I didn't know what to do because I sort of never imagined myself at a, at a place like Harvard, you know, but obviously it was, it was an opportunity that was too good to pass up. And, you know, I was excited to be on the East Coast as far away from home as possible. Had and then when I got the there, Coast at that point? I, I, so my, my mom's family is actually from Philadelphia. So I, I had visited, but, you know, I, I hadn't spent a lot of time there. And, you know, <laughs> my first problem was figuring out how to dress in the cold weather. And I thought if I just put on my cute pea coat from J. Crew over my T-shirt that that was enough. And then I basically froze to death. So I, it was a bit of a learning experience for me. But, um, you know, I had an absolutely amazing time there. Once you got a nice down jacket, everything. Yes. Down. I was a few years ahead of Mark Zuckerberg, unfortunately. So I didn't get to, to, to coast off the Facebook effect. Were you thinking at that point, I want to become a journalist? So my first internship, when I when I was a freshman, I decided I wanted to work at a local news station, and I um, went back to Hawaii, where I'm from, and I worked in Honolulu, and I just had the most incredible experience. And every summer, I did a new place. And so my sophomore summer, I was at Good Morning America in New York. And then I interned at the local stations in San Francisco and Boston. And then I got my start at NBC in, in their news associates program, um, where I had a, a lot of exposure to, you know, the big shows, the big network shows. And ultimately, I started on air at in Birmingham, Alabama. When you realize, okay, to be on air, I have to go to Alabama. How what was the calculus in your head at that time? <laughs> You know, I sort of knew that, you know, at, at that time, that's the path you had to take. You had to pay your dues. And, you know, I was definitely a little bit nervous. I'd never been to Alabama, but I had the most amazing experience working with all of these incredible young and hungry people and being exposed to a culture that, you know, I, I'd never seen before. And it was really an eye-opening experience. And I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. By the way, nothing against Alabama whatsoever. But I I, too, when I was thinking about this industry and going into this career, a lot of people would say, okay, you have to go to a smaller town. Right. And traditionally in local news, that's just how it happened, is you go to the middle of the country, you learn, you know, the tricks of the trade, and then you work your way up. And actually, Birmingham is a, is a huge market comparatively. Um, and so I, it was actually a great opportunity to sort of, you know, start off in, in a mid-sized place where, you know, they had, you know, some incredible people who I could learn from. Awesome. Have you 
have you been surprised at all by the reaction to the book? So I would say that the reaction has been almost universally positive and supportive. There are definitely trolls on Twitter. Uh, There are definitely people who, you know, who I don't think will be convinced. And, you know, that's sad. But I do think that there are a lot of people who will give this book a chance and who can be convinced. Um, and, And we need them. Uh, to be convinced. But, you know, I, I understand that some of what I'm reporting here is is new territory and it can make some people uncomfortable and no good change comes without some people feeling uncomfortable. We're talking about the status quo and the status quo has been what it is for a long time. And so the people who, you know, are responsible for the status quo, you know, may not be very happy with it. But I am simply reporting the truth of what I saw, and you know, I, I came into this with no agenda. I'm a journalist, and I don't think we can solve this problem without showing people the truth of, of what is happening, and, and that's what I hope to do. What's been the toughest lesson for you personally along the way? <sighs> well, trying to talk about sexism is kind of like walking the third rail. This is a incredibly emotional topic and it invokes a lot of debate. So in a lot of ways for me, it was a minefield just how, you know, where did I stand on these issues? And, you know, how do I talk about this in a way that isn't going to offend someone? And so that was incredibly difficult. Um, You know, the other hard part is I, you know, there are so many amazing stories of incredible women that I didn't get to tell. And, you know, literally every woman I interviewed who has, you know, remained in this industry, they're kind of like survivors. They have these incredible, it's they're like, you know, war stories about <laughs> how they've gotten to where they are. And so I wish I could have told more of those stories, um, but I had to be realistic about the length of the book and the attention span in, in, in the age of smartphones. Um, and, you know, I, I, I hope that people will take the broader message that there are so many women out there who, who could be the next Mark Zuckerberg, who might start the next Facebook, and, and we need to give them a chance. Here, here. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? Ooh, um, you know, at one of my internships, I won't say where, but I was a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed young aspiring journalist. And uh, one of the reporters said to me, why do you want to do this job? You don't need more than a kindergarten education. And I it paused for a second and thought, well, hey, first of all, I hope that, you know, people with you know, more than a kindergarten education are doing this job. In fact, we need them to because they're telling the stories that are, you know, being shared around the world. Emily, don't um, tell them our secret. <laughs> By the way, I graduated from first grade. I want you to know. So I am way overqualified for this. Um, you know, but really, I, I, I think it is. It's so important for, for journalists to be approaching the stories that they tell from, you know, a, a nuanced um, perspective. And, and we play such a great role. And as, as you said earlier, Rebecca, just shaping the, the beliefs of, 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 of people across the country. And so, like, if I can do my part in, in shaping some of these ideas about who can be good at computers and, and who can do these jobs, then, you know, I feel that that's a very worthy, worthy profession. And I know that there are so many great journalists out there who are doing such hard work to expose some of these 
sexism and sexual harassment stories happening across the country. And um, I'm really glad I stuck with it, even though I was, uh, in his view, overqualified. (laughs) And I have met so many people who are incredibly smart and talented in this industry, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Did you, by the way, did you take a job with that manager? I, so that was an internship, and okay. I just, you know, I just sort of brushed it off. I yeah. think we all get bad advice, and, you know, hopefully we, we, we know when to listen to ourselves. You know, not all, I mean, it's certainly a lesson, and not all, not all advice is, is good advice, and, you know, that's why we have our own sort of internal compass um, to keep us on the right path. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Emily Chang. Thank you so much for joining me on No Limits. Thanks, Rebecca. It was so great to be here. Thank you for shining a light on these issues. Absolutely. The book is called Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley by Emily Chang. And next time, Emily, let's get you in studio. I can't wait to see you in New York. I would love to see you in person next time. Sign me up. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really does help to spread the word. And you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. I also want to give a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Boncardo, our research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the rest of the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.